Now, Father, we ask that you would hear and answer these prayers by the power of the Spirit, because we come in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's Pentecost, around 50 days after Passover and 10 days after Jesus has ascended to the Father. The disciples are worshiping and waiting, waiting to receive power that Jesus had promised them, waiting for the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden it happened. Verse 2 says that that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a, a mighty rushing wind. It, it filled the entire house where they were sitting and, and divided tongues as of fire came down and, and appeared and rested on each one of them. Immediately, Jesus' apostles go outside and they begin to speak. And there in Jerusalem, there are people from all over the Mediterranean. They had gathered for the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And the apostles, as they speak, um, the people that are there from all around the world, they begin to hear the good news about Jesus, and they hear it in their own language. And 3,000 of them believe. And 3,000 of them are saved. Pentecost. Today is the day when many Christians around the world celebrate this story. Rushing wind, tongues of fire, foreign tongues... Uh, it's intriguing. But, but what does it have to do with us exactly? I mean, it's a question that we ask, I think. I mean, Christmas, we know what to do with that. Uh, the Magi give presents and we give presents. Easter, we, we know how to celebrate Easter. But Pentecost, what are we to make of Pentecost? Well, if you're asking that question this morning, then you're in good company. Verse 12 uh, says that all who witnessed these events were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? That was their question as well. And so my goal this morning is simply to, to try to give an answer to that question, to start to give an answer to that question. What does Pentecost mean? First, Pentecost means that God's judgment is absorbed. You know, when God makes his presence known in the Bible, he makes it known through fire. Have you ever noticed that? God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. God appeared at Mount Sinai and there was smoke and there was fire. God led Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. And and when Solomon built the temple and God went to dwell there, he appeared in the temple and it was filled with fire. Fire indicates God's presence because like fire, God's presence is, is powerful, even dangerous. Uh, God's presence is a consuming fire. Like, like hydrogen peroxide that, that consumes the impure bacteria that you get on a, on a cut. So God's presence consumes everything that is impure and sinful, not in keeping with creation's design. So when God's fiery presence descends at Mount Sinai, 3,000 idolatrous Israelites die. They are consumed for breaking God's law. That's why when 
people come into the presence, the fiery presence of God, they become deathly afraid. Because sin and sinners, imperfect people, impure people, this is part of what God's holy presence consumes. And yet, and yet when God's fiery presence descends on the church in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people come alive and are saved. Think about that for a second. At Sinai, 3,000 people die when God's fiery presence descends. And at Pentecost, 3,000 people come alive when God's fiery presence descends. Now, what accounts for this difference? Well, just think back uh, how John the Baptist described Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize this world with spirit and with fire. And Jesus himself spoke of his ministry saying, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But what John the Baptist did not clearly understand was that the fire that Jesus would bring was a fire that would fall first on Jesus himself. See, Jesus goes on in that same place to say, I have a baptism to undergo. I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is complete. Jesus himself would undergo his own baptism of fire on the cross. And that changes everything. That is the difference between Sinai and Pentecost. You know, we are in the midst of a tremendous amount of change and more change again. Just as soon as we get settled into our routines and rhythms with the COVID-19, uh, summer is happening. Schools are getting out and we're trying to figure out what's the new rhythm now. And, and things are starting to open back up. So we're having to relearn all kinds of new things. Uh, and I can't help but think of, of my summers growing up, how unlike this they were. You see, when summer, when school let out and summer started where I was from, it meant you go to the beach. It meant trips to Florida. And trips to Florida always meant sunburns. I mean, I think I got a bad sunburn every year. I know it's hard for you to believe because of my complexion and my hair color, but, but it's true. I got a sunburn every year. And... Uh, and even though I got a sunburn every year, and even though I know that's surprising to you, I do want you to know that I do not hold the record for the most infamous sunburns amongst my friends. You see, one night after we had finished our exams, we all got in the car and we drove straight through the night. Right after exams, we drove straight through the night to the beach. And we arrived early the next morning. The sun had just risen. It was cool. There was wind. And instead of going to the place that we were staying, we went straight to the beach and we just slept there. We slept on the beach in the morning. Well, a couple hours later, we woke up and uh, a friend who was, who was there, he... He didn't. He forgot to put on any kind of protective covering, and, and we just continued to stay out on the beach the rest of the day. His sunburn was so bad that he actually ended up in the hospital uh, on an IV drip. They call it sun poisoning. You know, sun's an interesting thing. It, it gives us life, and, and we have to live in its presence. And yet, the sun can also 
kill us. It could destroy us. Well, from then on, my friend used the highest SPF sunscreen that he could find, which at that time was called Bullfrog. It, it was something like SPF 1000, I think. And this sunblock absorbed every harmful ray of the sun. It didn't let anything through. As long as he had on the bullfrog, he could enjoy the benefits of the sun's presence and get the vitamin D and the energy without the sun destroying him. You know, Jesus, Jesus is like the ultimate bullfrog. On the cross, he was baptized in the fire of God's presence. And he absorbed every ray that could destroy you and destroy me. So that God's fiery presence would no longer consume you, but cleanse you. It would no longer hurt you, but it would heal you. So that 3,000 people might not die, but might come to life in his fiery presence. So here's the question. Have you put on your sunscreen today? Have you bathed yourself in the work of the Son of God who loved you and who gave himself for you? Have you slathered yourself in his blood, poured out for the forgiveness of your sins? Because, because here's the thing. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't have Jesus, then what do you have to protect you from the consuming fire of God's presence? And if you do have Jesus... If you do have Jesus, then, then let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. God's fiery presence has been absorbed in Jesus so that that presence is purifying and not punishing. Pentecost means that the presence of, your, of God in your life is gracious and life-giving. Pentecost means that God's judgment has been absorbed. The second thing that we see in this passage is that Pentecost means that old divisions are healed. There's another important story in the Old Testament that helps us to understand the meaning of Pentecost. It's the story of Babel. It's found in Genesis chapter 11. Some of you will know, know the story. Um, all these people from around the world had come together in one place to share a common language and a common culture. And, and, and they try to use this common language and, and common culture to build this great city with a tower up to heaven. It, it's really a story about how people try to use their technological in, innovation and their creative spirit, the image of God that's been placed in them. They, they try to use that to render God unnecessary. It's a, it's a very modern story. But the story goes on to, to show that the pride that brings them all together in one culture ends up tearing them apart. See, the story leaves humans in a state of confusion and misunderstanding and division. And, and this story, it's played out a million different times and a million different ways. It, it played out in George Floyd's death this week. It, it played out when, when someone framed distress, uh, feigned distress, and and called the police to report that that a threatening-looking black man uh, was 
was scaring them. It it played out in the tragic case of Ahmad Arbery's death. You know, it's difficult to look around America and to deny that that we have a race problem. That race relations are difficult and strained. That we are a divided people and we are divided by by different cultures and ethnicities. But I don't see this problem that America has as a actually particularly American problem. Sure, it has a particular manifestation in America because of our history and, and our particular location and, and makeup, but, but it's a human problem. It's a human problem that goes all the way back to Babel. You see, cultural differences leave us confused and misunderstood and even divided and antagonistic. This is how sin plays out in communities and communities writ large. And that's what's so amazing and significant about what happens at Pentecost. I mean, did you notice the Spirit falls and the disciples go out and they start preaching the gospel Uh, But they didn't just preach the gospel. Verses 7 and 8 and 11 tell us that they preached the gospel so that people from different parts of the world heard the gospel in their own language, in their own culture. Notice that. It, It doesn't say that they understood a different language. It's not as if the apostles were speaking Spanish and I started to understand Spanish even though I'm an English speaker. No, it says that they understood in their own language. They heard in their own language. See, Pentecost gives us this this hope that there can be diversity without division because Pentecost shows us how how the Holy Spirit values the diverse cultures of the world. You know, sociologists say, some sociologists have said and noted how how Pentecostalism, uh, the um, branch of the Western church, Pentecostalism and movement, is one of the widest reaching and most culturally diverse movements in all of history. That's because those who are attuned to the Spirit know that the Spirit loves diversity. Holy Spirit does not prioritize Hebrew or Greek or even English. And this same Spirit unites the diverse cultures of the world in the worship of the Lamb. That's why in the book of Revelation, we see all the nations keeping their, uh, the diversity of their ethnic and cultural identity. And yet they are gathered together in unison around the throne of God, worshiping the Lamb. And there's no pecking order. There's no pecking order. There are no degrees of one culture is better than the, than the other. There, there's only redeemed sinners bringing the fruit of their cultural labors into the, the heavenly Jerusalem as an, as an offering to the king of the nations who even washes those, all those cultural offerings with his own blood. The outpouring of the Spirit means that Babel is reversed. And if the outpouring of the Spirit means that Babel is reversed, then those who are filled with the Spirit, spirit Spirit-filled Christians, will consequently aim to see divisions healed 
and they will celebrate diversity. Spirit-filled Christians are those who who submit their own cultural norms and and any cultural norms to, to what God has done and is doing in Christ and by the Spirit. So I have a question. Is that you? Is that me? Or do you still somehow think that that German organs are somehow more holy than African drums? Or that starched collars are somehow more holy than tattooed shoulders? Now, Pentecost means that we can live into the glorious vision of Revelation, where all the cultures of the world and all their ethno-nationalistic diversity will come together, worshiping the Lamb, who heals all the old divisions. Pentecost means that old divisions are healed. Thirdly, Pentecost means that all, all people are empowered. Notice how verse 3 says that the tongues rest on each one of them. And verse 4 says that they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is emphasized in the text. And Peter, he sees this as the fulfillment of a very ancient prophecy. Look at verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, Peter says. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, they and they shall prophesy. Prophets were those on whom God's spirit rested so that they could communicate the knowledge of God to other people. That's what a prophet was in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, prophets were few and they were far between. They also tended to fit a certain social strata. See, prophets like priests and kings came from the privileged class and they were generally older and they held important positions and they were almost always male. But this situation, Moses says, wasn't ideal. Moses himself, Israel's greatest prophet, longed for a day when when all the Lord's people would be prophets, when all God's people had the Spirit placed on them. And Joel, Joel, the prophet Joel promised a day when Moses' prayer would be answered, when God's prophetic Spirit would, would be poured out on all flesh. Pentecost is that day. When Peter sees people speaking in tongues, he says, The day has arrived. The day is here. This is it. This is the last days when the Spirit is being poured out on all people. Now, the point is not about the gift of prophecy per se. The disciples are speaking in tongues. Now, now the point is that all the Lord's people will have a relationship to the Spirit that was formerly experienced only by prophets and priests and kings. That the Spirit would come on and empower for ministry all God's people the way that He came on and empowered and gave knowledge to prophets and priests and kings. Maybe it's like the, um, the evolution of the mobile phone. 
Do you remember when the mobile phone first came out? Of course, some of you don't because it was out long before you were born. But I remember the evolution of the mobile phone. I mean, when you got a mobile phone when I was growing up, uh, you were either like very rich, had a luxury car, or were Zach Morris on Saved by the Bell. Uh, but eventually, they start to make more affordable cell phones so that so that what was once only experienced by a, a small few, a very small portion of the population could then be shared by all. That's Pentecost. And guess who gets to experience this outpouring of the Spirit that was only experienced by few? Old people? Yes. But also young people. The rich? Yes. But also slaves. Men? Yes. But also women. The implications are radical. And we we see these radical implications played out as we read the New Testament. You see, without eliminating ordained officers or gender distinctions or parent-child relationships or respect for elders, without eliminating any of those things, the New Testament nevertheless radically, radically recontextualizes those realities in light of the universal outpouring of the Spirit on all believers. And this means that, that everything has to be reconceived. Authority has to be reconceived. You know, authority, most of us have this idea that authority is one-directional. That there are leaders and there are followers, there are those to whom we submit and then there are others. Now, the New Testament does say we are to submit to our leaders, absolutely. But while we are to submit to our, uh, our leaders, the New Testament also tells us that all believers are to submit to one another. That is, it's no longer that there are those who have authority and those who don't. But all have authority because all have the Spirit who is the sovereign one. And so, in certain respects and in certain ways, all are under the authority of others in certain respects and in certain ways. Authority has to be reconceived. Leadership has to be reconceived. Age has to be reconceived. See, while age appears in the New Testament, it's no longer a qualification for service. Did you know that? I mean, the word elder is basically transformed in such a way that it's bereft of any notion of age, which is crazy because the word has to do with age. And yet, uh, while you can't be a new convert, sure, that doesn't mean you can't be a young person. A Timothy. If you look in the New Testament, it's endowment and dependence on the Spirit, not age and experience that qualifies one for service. Age has to be recon rethought, reconceived. Gender roles have to be reconceived. I mean, it's no accident that in God's providence, the apostles have to submit to the testimony of women who become the first preachers of the gospel, the first evangelist. It's women who are praying and prophesying at the church in Corinth. And it's a woman who clarifies the faith for Apollos. And it's a woman, Phoebe, who Paul calls the church at Rome to submit to, give her whatever she needs for her ministry. 
Uh, that's a form of submission. In fact, Phoebe was a protasis in the ancient world, a, a benefactor. And she was Paul's protasis, and that means, in certain respects, Paul was beholden to Phoebe and under her authority, and yet Phoebe was beholden to Paul as an apostle and under his authority. Gender has to be reconceived. Now, is the, the New Testament doing away with ordination or with gender qualifications for certain offices or with roles in the household? I, I don't think so. I really don't. But it does radically transform these realities. It radically transforms and recontextualizes each and every one of these realities. Because the status and relationship and empowerment known by few in the Old Testament are now experienced by all in the New. Oh, how I wish that God made all prophets, Moses said. And he has. And we do ourselves a great disservice when we deny it. So, believer, young or old, rich or poor, male or female, single or married, Whoever you are, you have been anointed with the anointing of Christ, and you are, you are his prophet and priest and king to the world. Pentecost means that all God's people are empowered. You are empowered. So serve. Finally, Pentecost means that the harvest is ready. Verse 1 says that this happened when the day of Pentecost arrived. I don't think it's insignificant that the Spirit arrived on Pentecost. And notice that Pentecost is already a special day in the Jewish calendar. It's the Jewish Harvest Festival, the day that celebrated the first produce of that year's crop. In essence, they were celebrating um, that because some of the harvest had arrived, more was out there waiting, more was coming. Pentecost means that, that there is a harvest out there waiting. Pentecost means that the, the fruits of Jesus' toil, the rewards of his sufferings, are ready to be collected. That the blood that Jesus sowed has, has turned into a harvest of souls for us to reap. And so what do the disciples do? They go. They go knowing that Jesus has purchased for himself men and women, boys and girls from every tongue and tribe and nation. They go into the streets of Jerusalem. They go to Samaria. They go to the ends of the earth because Pentecost means that there is a harvest. Believer, do you know that there is a harvest ready to be reaped? In your office, at your gym, in your neighborhood, at your school? Did you know that there is a harvest that is ready to be reaped? Reaped on the east side and there's a harvest to be reaped on the west side? There's a harvest to be reaped in Montecito, and there's a harvest to be reaped in Hope Ranch. Did you know that there is a harvest to be reaped in Central America and South America, in secular Europe and in the hostile Middle East? There is a harvest to be reaped. So go. Go because there are souls to be saved. Go because there are radical divisions that need to be healed. Go because there are sectors of society that need to be transformed with the loving good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his reign. Go, because God has a people that he has empowered, and that's you. So go. The first fruits of God's future have arrived. 
God has come to cleanse the earth and to make all things right and all things new. The spirit that hovered over the the disordered chaos at the beginning of the world in Genesis 1-1 now descends to hover over the, the chaos and disorder of our sinful world and to make it right. So go. And as you go, celebrate. Celebrate the future that has already arrived by the Spirit, the future that Jesus has won. Happy Pentecost.